today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Paul certainly likes his long uh, sentences, doesn't he? All right. Uh, well, good to see everybody. Uh, well, we have been spending a few weeks thinking about the church, and uh, we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to look at Ephesians is because, as Fred mentioned before, there is a lot of, of things happening at our church just in terms of you know, potentially joining the Christian Reformed Church denomination. And so I wanted to consider what it actually means to be a church. But as we also kind of come out of this pandemic, uh, I, I do think we're going to have to build up some of our uh, old habits again related to being the church. And in order to do that, uh, I recognize that we collectively have to have some kind of conviction that, you know, the church is important. And I don't necessarily mean for our own purposes, but that the church has an important role in the world. Gallup, they just released some information. And um, I think this came out in March of this year, but uh, apparently like for the first time in, in the US, the number of Americans who belong to a church or synagogue or a mosque fell below 50% for the first time. So it's not just looking at Christianity, but I guess uh, all the major religions in general. And uh, less than 50% of Americans now belong to a religious community. And, you know, that's a basic commentary on the state of religion in America and the connections that people have with communities of religion. So by comparison, that number was actually 70% about 22 years ago. And not surprisingly, when you break those numbers down by generation, it's the millennial generation and the and Gen Z, these two generations that have the largest percentage, percentage that don't identify um, with a religious uh, with a particular religion. So they've been called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Now, those of you who have children, uh, I think there is something that um, you know, we should recognize, and it's this, that the world that they're gonna grow up in is gonna be far more secular than the one that we grew up in or the one that our parents grew up in. Uh, if they do identify as Christians, they will probably be a minority, which means we should put a lot of prayer and thought into how we're going to disciple our children 
to have a faith that is resilient because based on the way things are trending, um, things might be going against uh, their, their faith. So if they're going to be uh, faithful Christian believers um, into adulthood, uh, they might have very different challenges and struggles than uh, we have. I was attending a conference last week there, there was so many conferences going on. There was like three conferences uh, last week, but I only went to two. So uh, I attended a, a conference virtually last week. And, uh, you know, one of the speakers said something interesting. He said identity formation has a lot to do with where you find your community of belonging. Uh, people used to form their identity around things like family or things like nation, because that is ultimately where they found belonging. And today, a lot of people are forming their identity around things like race or gender or sexuality, because that has become a place where people have found belonging. And he wasn't necessarily making a moral evaluation on where people are forming their identity, but he was making a comment that everybody needs a place to belong because where they belong will shape their own sense of identity. And as I was thinking about that, uh, I think one of the most important things that the church can do is be hospitable and be welcoming in order to create a community of belonging. And I think that can be a challenge right now for at least two reasons. First, I think the pandemic has turned strangers into potential threats. So if you don't know whether someone's been vaccinated or if you don't know how disciplined they've been in terms of taking the proper precautions, then it can create an additional obstacle in terms of being hospitable, right? Second, uh, there's a lot of polarization. And the problem is not simply that people disagree, but it's that it doesn't even make sense how a person can have an alternative perspective at all. And so those who disagree kind of get reduced to being maybe ignorant or brainwashed or maybe a person of uh, lower moral quality. And yet it is in this kind of climate where I believe the church matters the most. Uh, we started talking about what the gospel of grace does to us and how one of the implications is that no one can boast. Division, I think, is oftentimes caused by an internal boasting. A former professor of mine, and I, I've mentioned this illustration before, but he would say, uh, we have a tendency to take things that are supposed to be on a horizontal plane, things that are just merely different about us, and then we, we tend to flip it on this vertical ladder. So it's not just that these are differences amongst people, but now it's, uh, this is better than uh, another person. And so it's not, it's not that your cultural culture values uh, individuality, whereas my culture values community, or your culture is shaped by the urban environment, whereas my culture is shaped by uh, a rural environment. But it's that the way my culture does things is better than yours, is more superior than yours. And division happens when we boast about these differences that are supposed to be good and representative of the diversity that uh, God has created in creation. And when we use these differences and elevate it above others. But if you believe that you are truly saved by grace, then uh, what we saw last week is it should eliminate any reason for boasting. Now, the church should embody a community of, <clears throat> of belonging that is built on love and grace and hospitality because that is our experience of the gospel, is it not? Uh, it's not simply that we have the right message and the right doctrines or that we present this good po uh, positive public persona but it's that we have a community of individuals who have been called by god into his marvelous light and transformed by the power of the gospel and therefore to disdain or dismiss or reject others it basically betrays 
what we claim God did for us, and it makes us out to be uh, pretty hypocritical. Now, today's passage, I think, follows a similar pattern as last week in that Paul says this, you were once like this, right? But now in Christ Jesus, this has happened. So now you are like this. And Paul's trying to get across that there was a, a transformation. There was this objective change that happened to you through Christ Jesus. And now he's exhorting them to live out the implication of that in the life of the community. You know, there was a lot of tension between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And this is something that we've been talking about. Uh, the, the Jews and Gentiles, they quarreled over all kinds of things. We saw two weeks ago, they quarreled over food. In other parts of the Bible, you see they quarreled over the issue of circumcision. Uh, supposedly, <clears throat> when a Jewish person would marry a Gentile, um, the Jewish family would actually hold a funeral for that Jewish person because it was such an egregious act. Uh, that's not surprising considering the forbidden nature of intermarriage within Old Testament law. But imagine if a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer were to, get, were to get married in those days and the kind of scandal that would cause. And then you just kind of think about uh, the similar kind of dynamics that we see between uh, certain ethnic groups today and certain cultures today when people from these groups get married and uh, when families are so opposed to it. Now, why is there opposition? Uh, I think it goes beyond a simple disagreement of something, right? It's that both groups legitimately do not like one another, and there is some hostility. And that's implied when Paul says Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The nature of this Jewish and Gentile relationship is characterized by hostility. And Paul is largely addressing the Gentiles here, and he's telling them, remember where you came from. Um, you were the ones who were at one point separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is reminding them of their status and what their status was before they met Jesus. On the one hand, I think he's trying to say that, you know, you Gentiles, you shouldn't view yourselves as superior to the Jews, which is uh, how pagan cultures typically viewed themselves in relation to the Jews. And he's saying, <clears throat> you know, in a sense, one could argue you were in an inferior position because you were at one time complete strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, you didn't know God at all. And therefore, as it's verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so even though they didn't initially belong, ultimately, they ended up being brought near by the blood of Christ. On the other hand, he's also saying, even though the Jews were the first recipients of the promise, the gospel essentially eliminates any kind of pecking order because even though the Jews were the first recipients of the promise in Christ, the two groups have now been made into one new humanity. Now, how does that happen? Verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Uh, that's an interesting reason to give for Paul to give for how Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And uh, if you read the commentaries, uh, you know, it's caused some confusion among, amongst the commentators. I think what Paul is probably getting at is that even though the law was unique to the Jews, this creation of a new man, or better, a better translation, a new humanity, <clears throat> it means that there was this new law that has been generated that governs this people, the law of Christ. And uh, you see that phrase in other uh, places in Paul's letters. One of the implications of this is that it does get rid of any kind of pecking order when it comes to the people of God. And the potential reason for boasting from a Jewish person is actually also taken away. So if, if you're familiar with the way uh, the Jewish temple was set up, basically you have like the inner courts and the outer courts and the inner courts were for 
the Israelites and, you know, there was a, a separate court for women, but on the outside of the temple, that's where the court of Gentiles were. So literally on the other side of the temple wall, you had the Gentiles separated from the Jews. And so when Paul uses the phrase dividing wall of hostility, I think he's literally talking about that wall that divided the Gentiles from the Jews in the temple, in temple religion. So in the temple, the Jews were the ones who were closer to God, while the Gentiles were the ones who were further away. Now, what Jesus did, according to verse 17, is he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. He's basically saying that no matter where you started, both groups still need to have the gospel of uh, peace preached to them. One of the greatest features of the gospel is that uh, everybody's in the same boat. Uh, everybody's the same. And maybe this is also one of the most difficult pills to swallow when it comes to the gospel. Everybody's status before God is that of being a needy beggar who is in desperate need of Jesus. And therefore, no matter of your race or your gender or your career success or your education or all the other things that we tend to derive our identity from or our value or our worth from, we are all the same with respect to of our need for Jesus. But the reason why that can be a difficult pill to swallow is that um, uh, we, we feel better about ourselves when we actually derive our identity from these things. Uh, there is this uh, in, insecure, self-righteous aspect of the human heart that wants to set itself apart from others and feel better than others and superior to others. And we can use anything to feel superior to others. And Paul is saying that on the one hand, whether you are near or far from God, at the end of the day, you still need to have the gospel of peace preached to you. Uh, on the other hand, whether you were near or far from God, you can still have the same access to the Father in one spirit. In other words, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't really matter because now you both need Jesus and Jesus has brought you together to create one new humanity. And here's, a, here's where it connects to the church. Uh, you can also find belonging no matter who you are or where you were in relation to the church. You know, in verse 19, Paul says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Uh, when you are no longer a stranger or alien, what does that mean? It means now you belong, right? I think most of us, uh, maybe most of us, maybe some people like this, but I think most of us don't like to be in a room or a social situation where you're the outsider and you don't know that many people, right? Where you're the stranger, where you're the alien. Uh, that's probably why visiting a church for the first time can be an intimidating experience. You want to be somewhere where everybody knows your name, like in Cheers, right? Uh, but then Paul takes it a step further and says, not only are you no longer aliens and strangers, but you're fellow citizens, which means you belong to a common kingdom. You share a common allegiance to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. And then he takes it a step further and he says, not only that, but now you are members of the household of God, uh, which means there is a level of intimacy there uh, that you find when you belong to family. So I guess the question is this, uh, <clears throat> is this picture that Paul is presenting, is this a, a, an ideal picture or is this a, a reality, right? Is, this, is he saying this is something that we should be or is he saying this is something that we are? Uh, I actually think it's both, okay? Uh, things are getting, again, pretty polarized, um, it seems. And I think as Christians, we have to be careful which narratives we uh, allow ourselves to, I guess, buy into or be influenced by, because 
a lot of the narratives out there, a lot of the secular narratives out there, uh, I think end up creating more uh, hostility and more division. And part of that is because secular narratives don't really have a message of forgiveness and reconciliation built into them, but it's primarily narratives of power. Uh, but the other part of that is because unity is actually something that is incredibly difficult to achieve. Uh, think about it. How do you bring two groups of people who are hostile towards one another together in unity, right? How do you bring the Jews and Gentiles together in unity? Uh, I would say it's probably virtually impossible to do that. Uh, perhaps it would be impossible if it were not for the person and work of Jesus, right? That's how difficult it is. It required Jesus's death on a cross to achieve that kind of unity. Uh, it took the blood of Jesus to break down that dividing wall of hostility in order to create that kind of peace. It took a spiritual power and the death of the second person of the Trinity to accomplish the kind of unity that we ultimately need. And so I think we, we need to appreciate how difficult it is to achieve that kind of unity uh, unity is a kind of miracle that required the work of Jesus to accomplish. And in that sense, the unity of the church is an objective reality. Jesus accomplished it. Uh, he bound us together through this common faith. And uh, it's accomplished as much as our individual salvation is accomplished. But on the other hand, Christians don't always live out the implications of that objective reality. And so that's why we often see a church divided. But, you know, unless we strive for that, then there will always be a gap, I think, in our corporate witness to the gospel um, and the gospel that we proclaim, I guess, with our, our message, with our words. Um, the, the closer we can get to achieving unity, and, you know, and we'll get to this in Ephesians 4, but Paul uses the word maintain, which seems to um, imply that uh, the bonds of peace have already been uh, accomplished. But then he also says uh, it's something that we have to attain. So he uses both verbs in, in Ephesians 4. Uh, but that's what unity is. It's something that we have to maintain because Christ accomplished it, but also something that we should attain uh, for the sake of our corporate witness uh, to the gospel. And so Paul says now that we are no longer strangers and aliens, and we are actually being joined together into a structure. And that structure is the holy temple, which is the dwelling place for God. And when you become a Christian believer, there is a sense in which God takes you away from alienation and brings you into belonging. Uh, the greater sense of belonging that you have to a community, I think the greater sense of blessing. But you know, on the flip side, the greater sense of belonging you have to a community, uh, I guess the downside is the less individual freedom you might have to do whatever you want to do. And in American culture, that would seem like a big negative. And that's probably why you have all these uh, spiritual but not religious people because they wanna maintain some sense of transcendence without tying themselves to a particular community. But if you notice the illustration Paul uses, when God calls you to himself, he also calls you to be part of a whole structure. Uh, you're called to become joined together with other believers. And that's essentially what it means to be a church. And while that might mean you lose some individual freedom, and after all, uh, if you are looking for any kind of genuine accountability, you should lose some sense of freedom and the ability to do whatever you want. Uh, I think it also means it's easier to connect to the presence of God. If it is true that the church is a holy temple and a dwelling place for God, then God's presence certainly resides within the community of God. Um, that's why, you know, I've had friends who 
um, you know, they don't go to church and, but they would still call themselves Christians. And they would say, well, I can just like listen to a sermon at home. And I, I kind of doubt that uh, in that kind of context where you just kind of have like this individual Christianity and you're not connected to a, a community of people. Uh, I, I do doubt that um, you can experience the presence of God uh, in the same way or in a, even in a powerful way than with being with the, the community of the people of God. And one of the reasons is because God's dwelling place is within uh, the, the church, within the community of God. Uh, I do think there is something uh, more powerful in terms of being with the people of God than just being isolated and on your own, which is why, um, you know, we've been trying to do this virtually. And I guess it, it brings up like a philosophical question. Is this still like being together and gathering together? You know, they didn't have this kind of technology in the New Testament world, so uh, the New Testament doesn't really address this, but <laughs> um, I, I do think it's it's important to meet together and maybe virtual accounts um, uh, in person is, is probably better. But I think there is a sense in which uh, we can experience the presence of God in a, in a powerful way because, again, the church is the dwelling place of God. Now, I'd mentioned how communities of belonging play a large role in shaping our identity. And most people are finding that Identity through communities are being constructed by race, gender, sexuality, political affiliation, sense of nationalism. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I heard this argument and I think I'm convinced by it, but a lot of people are kind of doubling down on these identities um, because they're ultimately lonely. They're looking for belonging. And so they find it in racial groups or gender groups or sexuality groups or political groups or uh, uh, nationalistic groups. Um, you know, God wants us to draw our identity from him ultimately. And the way we do that is by finding our sense of belonging to his family, to his household. And then only then can we attempt to transcend the dividing walls of hostility, because then at least we share a common foundation where Christ Jesus is our cornerstone. And uh, I guess all, all these other communities of uh, belonging, uh, ultimately, I think, will fade away, will self-destruct, will be destroyed by others. But in the community of the people of God, in the dwelling place of God, in the temple of God, where Christ Jesus is our cornerstone, uh, there is something eternal there uh, that we should tether ourselves to. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in song. Uh, God, we thank you just for the gift of the church. And... Um, uh, you know, if we really think about um, what the work of Christ was able to accomplish in its power and ability to bring together um, groups where there was once great hostility, uh, it truly is a great miracle. And uh, we praise you for it. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, at least for me, this hasn't been the most uh, encouraging season of seeing churches uh, around the country. And um, um, how so much of uh, you know politics and race have been uh, bringing uh, all kinds of uh, hostility and division. Uh, but God, I pray that you would um, bring uh, great healing and reconciliation uh, to your church, because um, as a church, we want to be a witness to what Christ really achieved. Uh, we want to draw our uh, primary sense of identity from being a people who belong to you. And uh, 
Uh, I pray God that our church can do that and uh, churches everywhere can do that, that we would be hospitable churches that can uh, pursue things like forgiveness and reconciliation and love. And uh, even as we pursue uh, justice and righteousness. Um, and I, I pray God that uh, together your church would have a, um, you know, a better corporate witness um, to the power of Christ. Uh, so help us to maintain the bonds of peace, but also help us to attain it. Um, because uh, Jesus truly has uh, brought us together and made us one. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.